Thanks, Doug. Would you join me in prayer? Mighty God, thank you for the chance now to come to your scriptures. Ezekiel's a hard book. There's some difficult passages. There's some things that we'll discuss today that may be hard, uh, that may convict. And I know that you've been doing a work in my heart to trust you through this text and the different shapes that it's taken throughout the week. And now I ask that um, all of our hearts would be ready to receive exactly what you want for each of us. We, we can't script these, these moments. We can only hope to hold with an open hand that, what you, that which you desire to teach us. So speak to us now, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we've probably all had a similar experience where you start a new job. Anybody ever started a new job? Okay. And you start your new job and you've got your job description and you've got a list of things that you're supposed to do, right? Everybody's received a job description, right? How long did it take for that job description to change? (laughs) Those of you that work in tech and some of these very fast-paced industries, you're like, it changed before it landed on my desk. Like, it just immediately morphed. For um, teachers, for other kinds of industries, physicians, the medical field, it doesn't necessarily change like straight away, but it starts to change over time. There's rapid change in the ways that each of us is engaged with a job, which is a form of our calling. Every one of us have had, have had a boss or a supervisor come to us and say, hey, I know we hired you to do this, but we really need you to go do this. Did anyone have that happen to them this week, by the way? I just think it'd be kind of fun if someone was like, were you in that meeting? Were you listening? Like, what happened there? We've all had this happen to us. And sometimes it's because we're doing a great job. Sometimes we get a promotion. Sometimes we get more responsibility handed to us. Sometimes a job change happens to us that we can't control. Your company gets acquired. There's new management. There's a new CEO in town. They have a different vision for what's going to be going on at your company or with your job. And so you roll up to that. You like your job. You want to keep your job. So you're willing to adapt and you're willing to change. Sometimes there are changes that come to us in work or in parenting. And we didn't want it and we didn't ask for it. But it just kind of happened. If you've ever gone through a season where someone you love, maybe your spouse, maybe a kid has been sick. And you've had to deal with this long-term illness. You're calling the shape of what you're supposed to do in that relationship, it changes. It stays the same, you're still a parent, you're still a spouse, but it changes. You're doing something different. There's been some kind of change brought upon you. Sometimes at work, uh, you get put on a plan. Some of us have been on performance improvement plans, some of us have been demoted at work. That's not fun. That's a change that we weren't counting on, but it happened. And now we have this responsibility in our calling. Okay, now we've got to go do something different. Now we've got to work through the plan. Now we've got to fix this. Now we've got to get better at management or better at, leader, at leadership or whatever's been put in front of us. These are various forms of crisis. And the book of Ezekiel is a book about crisis. If you're just joining us, we are attempting to preach through Ezekiel through these next couple of weeks. And it is a bear of a book to try to get into. And don't worry, we're going to set some context, we're going to try to set it up, but what you need to know at the top is that the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, are in crisis when Ezekiel lands on the scene. And Ezekiel, as we learned last week, is no stranger to change. He comes on the scene as a priest, he's been trained to pastor and shepherd and care for the people of Israel, and then God comes to him at the beginning of the book and says, you're going to be a prophet. He wasn't expecting that. The boss came and brought him a new job description. He wasn't counting on it, but it happened to him. And his calling, our calling, is to find the faithful way through that type of crisis, through that type of change. Crisis reveals our foundations. 
It reveals what we're really about. When we get unmoored, when something crazy happens to us, out of our control, we kind of default back to what we know best, who we are, who God has made us to be. There's a lesson in today's passage that I think is really good to any of us who are either in a place of crisis or coming out of it, or you're kind of starting to wrestle with that. And we're going to look through particularly the lens of who are these people that Ezekiel's trying to serve? So last week we talked about who Ezekiel is, like his training, his background, all that kind of thing. Now we're talking about who are these people that he's trying to figure out, these Israelites, the people of God. So there's an outline in your bulletin for you. Uh, If you'd like to follow along with that, we'll go through three steps. Step one, we're going to talk about the original calling of the people of Israel. Who are they supposed to be? The next one is how lost are we? And the we is intentional in there. How lost can we become? And then the next part will just be some practical steps, hopefully, for finding our way through this. So the original calling of the people of Israel. Don't turn to Ezekiel. Pick up your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy 7. What? He's throwing us a curve. Deuteronomy 7 is where we're going to go because we've got to look at who Israel is supposed to be to figure out how far they've gone off the rails. Does that make sense? Like, let's look at their original identity and then we'll be able to better map where they've gotten to. The book of Deuteronomy is a series of speeches given by Moses, who is a leader of the Israelites, and they are about to cross into the promised land. So if you remember all this, maybe you grew up around church, maybe not, but the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt. They're set free through the leadership of Moses, through the power of God. The exodus happens where they wander around the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, Moses sins against God. He hits the rock. He doesn't trust God. Whole other story. But he's not allowed to enter into the promised land. And so the book of Deuteronomy is a series of speeches he gives to his people, to these people that he loves, and they're going to go into the promised land without him. If you want to picture it, um, I picture it like looking out on a valley, like you're up on a ridge or you're on the corner of a canyon and you're looking out on a valley. And in Moses' case, what's in front of him is this destination, the promised land. I'm supposed to go there. I'm supposed to be there. But he can't. And so he's addressing the people of Israel. He's giving them kind of a manifesto for how to live in community, how to live as the people of God in this land that they're about to enter into. And so there's going to be three things that we kind of center on as we talk about the original calling of the people of Israel. Who are they made to be? Who are they called to be? And it goes like this. You can write these maybe as a subheading under number one. They're supposed to be a set-apart people. Their calling is sheer grace. And they're called to respond with faithfulness. A set-apart people, a call of sheer grace, and a response of faithfulness. First one, a set-apart people. I'll read this for us, but I'm in Deuteronomy 7, and I'm just going to read verse 6. This will be up on the screen as well. This is God speaking to the people of Israel through Moses. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Holy is an interesting word there. It means consecrated. It means set apart from God or set apart by God. But to our modern ears, we don't think of holiness or cleanliness as something that is given to us. We think of it as something that we have to sort of lather ourselves up for and work our way into. You got to work really hard to be a really holy person, right? But in this context, and I think throughout scripture, that's not the case. Holiness is a gift. It's a calling. It's something God empowers people to pursue to bring him glory. And so God's people, the Israelites, they're supposed to be holy. They're supposed to be set apart. 
They were supposed to live differently than the people around them. One of the keys to this is this idea of idolatry. They were not supposed to worship multiple gods. Israel would have been a unique nation in that they worshiped one god. They didn't divide their loyalty between multiple gods. They just wanted to worship one god. That was a way that they were different. When the church comes on the scene, when they're in the midst of the, of the Roman Empire, the bloodthirstiness and the cruelty of the Romans, what God calls the people to do, the church to do and to be, is to be set apart, not looking around judging others, but saying, look, this is what we're supposed to do. And so in that case, the people who followed Jesus Christ during the times of the Roman Empire, how were they holy? How were they set apart? They weren't going to go to the gladiator games. That was not entertainment if you were a follower of Jesus Christ because you believed in the value of people. You believed that people were not supposed to be exploited and used for violent purposes. During that time, the church began to start these places that eventually became hospitals where sick people were cared for and not discarded as they would have been done in the Roman Empire. Orphanages started during this time because Christians believed kids are valuable. And the day that they lived in did not agree with that, but they swam upstream, they did something different, they lived into a call to be a holy people in very practical ways. This is true in our day. People who follow Jesus Christ in our day were just meant to live differently in the world. We're not doing the judgmental thing, we're not saying we're better than other people, we're saying our God has called us to live differently. And if you've ever heard someone teach you that God's people somehow through their actions or activities are made better, you've heard wrong. Because what makes us better is Jesus Christ. It's not us. It's not our actions. It's not holiness that we manifest for ourselves. It's been given to us. And that's how we're similar to the people of Israel. We're called to be a set-apart people. Secondly, we have a calling that is based on sheer grace. Go back to Deuteronomy 7 with me. And we're going to read verses 7 and 8. This is God explaining a little bit of his decision around why, why pick Israel? Why have Israel be this light to the nations, a city on a hill? God says this, It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It wasn't because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's people are designed to be set apart, and they're designed to enter into that through grace. Did you hear a single word in what I just read about people doing stuff? Every verb in that passage is about God doing something about God freeing people, about God giving them identity, about God casting aside all of the chains and setting them free. This calling didn't come to the people of Israel because they worked for it, because they submitted a request for production. This did not happen to the people of Israel because they chanted the right prayer or they stood in the right place or they made sure they wore the right clothing. None of it was predicated on them being good enough for God. And it could never be. And now, as the people of God in the 21st century, it can never be predicated. Our faith, our trust in God can never be about what we have done. Or we're, we're toast. We're done. This word that is in the text where it says God loved you. That's why you are good enough for God, because he loved you. That Hebrew word is ahava love. That's a special kind of love. That's the love that God gives to people who are in a covenanted relationship with him who have made an agreement, who said, we're going to live your way. You're going to give us the power to live into this. We're going to live your way. This is so important in the book of Ezekiel because Israel goes so sideways in their commitment to covenant. They don't keep it up, but God, oh, good, good, good. God stays faithful. 
And so their calling out of sheer grace is so important as we kind of start to think about what were they originally supposed to do? They're supposed to live into that grace. Finally, what does that look like? How does this play out in their lives? They're meant to live faithfully. Not perfectly, but faithfully. Listen to verses uh, 11, and then I'll skip over to 25 and 26. Therefore, observe diligently the commandment, the statutes and ordinances that I'm commanding you today. Then verse 25, he's talking about foreign nations. The images of their gods you shall burn with fire. Do not covet the silver or gold that is on them and take it for yourself because you could be ensnared by it. For it is abhorrent to the Lord your God. Do not bring an abhorrent thing into your house or you will be set apart for destruction like it. You must utterly detest and abhor it for it is set apart for destruction. God's people, gift of grace, set apart, called to live differently. The best response that we can offer to that if you're a Christ follower is to take seriously what God says. Take seriously what he says. In this case, God warns his people to be very, very, very careful about idols. And this is all over the Old and the New Testaments, right? This is at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus phrased it this way. He said, no one can serve two masters. You can't have two gods ruling over your life. It won't work that way. Human beings can't divide our loyalty like that. God says to his people, live faithfully. Don't go chasing after idols because all you'll end up with is being disappointed and brokenhearted. And in our day, oh my gosh, our idols are prolific. And we can name a million of them, but just a couple of examples. Absolute trust in anything other than God, whether it's the free market, whether it's in your savvy, your degree, your diploma, your ability to work it in the marketplace, that's an idol. Individualism is an idol. Look at the, I mean, this is David Brooks' new book, The Second Mountain. The logical conclusion of individualism is a selfish people. It's terrible. It is breaking apart so many relationships in our world. Political ideologies are tearing us apart. You can pick right or left. We are shredding ourselves over this because we have elevated these things to ultimate status. Don't you dare disagree on any of these topics or else. We live in that day. And how's that working out for us? Not good. Like these are not good things. And God has warned his people over and over again, do not be about anything else before me. Do not give your life, your energy, your creativity, your love to anything else before me. Start with me, everything else works. Start with something else besides me, it all breaks apart. I've been convicted lately that an idol in my own life is just my sense of wanting to appear like I know what I'm doing. Can anybody relate to that? Wanting to appear like, I, yeah, I, I have three kids. I, I know how to parent. Yeah, I've, I've pastored churches for eight years. I know a little bit about that. Well, if you press down on that a little bit, I, I can get pretty insecure if those things come under attack. If I feel like I'm failing at some aspect of my work or if I snap at one of my kids, it is just so easy to go down into that place where you're going like, well, none of it's good. I'm just bad at all of it, right? I don't think I'm alone in that. Those are idols. Those are good things that I have turned into idols. And when they come under attack is when I start to squirm. What, when you experience it coming under attack, makes you start to squirm? That's your idol, church. And we got a bunch of them. And we got to start naming them, and we got to start asking God to free us from our idols. It is not our power that will free us. It is the power of God, and it is the living into our calling as this set-apart people, like the people of Israel, like the original family of God. Our calling is no different. It's just going to take on a different form.
So that's kind of where Israel is, the state of the state, who are they supposed to be. Now let's talk about where they are right now, what they've come to. And again, this is a little bit of a review from last week, but just to kind of catch everybody up, help us all be on the same page. How did they become so lost? This is part two. God's people had a civil war, and so they were split into two tribes, the northern tribe Israel and the southern tribe of Judah, two different nations. It's painful. It tore them apart, literally. The northern tribe was eventually assimilated into the Assyrian Empire. They were no longer a part of the people of God. They just sort of took on all the culture and all the standards around them, and they ceased to be God's family. And what's left, this tribe of Judah, which is where Ezekiel is, they have now been captured by the Babylonians, a a foreign army, and drug away to Babylon. But not all of them. This is kind of an insidious thing about the way that the Babylonians took over other nations. This is just so brilliant, but also kind of creepy. They would come in and they would take certain people from the conquered nation off with them to their homeland of Babylon. Which people? They would take the military leaders, the politicians, the priests, the people in the business community who were leaders, they would take anybody with any influence and they would take them away. They would leave the masses behind to kind of fend for themselves and descend into chaos. And then they would take those leaders and slowly start to sort of indoctrinate and and bring them into their way of thinking. That's a great way to destroy a group of people, is it not? And to replace who they are was something that they were never meant to be. This is what Israel is in danger of. God sends Ezekiel onto the scene. He tells Ezekiel time and time again, they're not going to listen to you, but that's not the point. They're not going to listen to you. This is going to suck. This is going to be really hard. You're going to be a prophet who tells people that don't want to hear you stuff they don't want to hear. And they're not going to put you on their Christmas card list. This is going to be rough for you. God says it over and over again, and yet he still calls Ezekiel to it. Why? Because there's a hope of redemption, a shred of hope that God keeps alive in the people of Israel. And we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But there are so many scathing indictments against the people of Israel. One in particular that if you're just kind of going like, man, what have they done to deserve this? They got taken away. This sounds like they're the victims. Yes and no. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. They are victims in that the Babylonians took them. But they've had a lot of stuff go sideways for them before this. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 18, God says this, I poured out my wrath upon them. These are his beloved people, chosen by grace, pouring out wrath. Can you imagine that? I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land, for the idols with which they defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their conduct and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And so other nations said of them, in that it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of this land. In other words, these people are losers. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they had come. Okay, why do we say all of that? Because this helps us understand how far off the map Israel has gotten. Just how far. These are the people supposedly closest and most aligned with God and his kingdom. They are in fact guilty, according to this text, of bloodshed and murder, filthy conduct, profaning God's name, not proclaiming his name, profaning it, cursing it, adopting foreign gods as their own, giving in to idolatry, 
and experiencing this lost credibility on the national stage. All the other nations are making fun of Israel and saying, like, you're supposed to be God's chosen people. Look at how terrible you are. Look at how messed up you are. They're the laughing stock of the nations. And was that their original calling? Was that God's intent when he said, you're my special people? What happened? This is a list of things that God's people have done. But hear me on this. This sermon is not about what we're not supposed to do. This sermon is about who we become when stuff happens to us. Who we become when we face crisis. How crisis, remember, sort of reveals our foundations. What has become of the people of Israel because of their sins? Ezekiel 2.4 says that the people are impudent and stubborn, and then like Doug read for us in 3.7, they're people with hard foreheads and stubborn hearts. This is what has happened to them. That phrase, hard foreheads, it means a failure to respond to what God is doing. Just trying to get through, and nothing's happening. They've become a locked door, and they were never meant to live like this. It's sad. It's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs for these people. And Ezekiel's mission, Ezekiel's message is to show up to them and say, this is not who you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be the set-apart chosen people of God. And here you are, bloodthirsty, idol worshipers, nomadic, morally compromised. You don't belong to this. You belong to God. And every one of us has had this happen to us at some point in our lives. I'm going to do a quick object lesson, but I've got to navigate some microphones. So bear with me. My kids have been really excited about this all week. All right. So if you're listening on the podcast, I've got a balloon and I've got a bot bag. Everybody loved these growing up, right? Like, these are so fun. I'm looking to see if there's any kids in the room that could help me with this. Do you want to help me with the bot bag, buddy? It just requires you to, like, put a little mustard into it and give them a little left hook. You want to do it? No? Cool. That's all right. I get to do it. So, this is going to be really loud. In crisis, every one of us faces a series of things that happen to us that we either don't control or that we don't really know how to respond to it. So, example one is this balloon. In crisis, we lose our foundation, we lose our anchor. What kind of crisis are you talking about? The last time you went through something with your health or you had a job fall apart on you. There are these things that happen to us and then underneath we're just kind of going like, what's happened to me? What's going on? We lose touch with who we really are and like a balloon that doesn't have any base to it, we just kind of go. And the wind, and if we had the fans on, that thing would be moving around, right? Because a balloon is a really nice decoration, but there's nothing to keep it in place. There's nothing solid about it. It is very impermanent. It has substance, there's a thing to it, but it's not really going to last or hold anything up. God's people had a base, but years of crisis did this to them. They drifted away. They became like a balloon that had nothing to tether it down. And so when the Babylonians came along, when that wind started to blow through their community, they just went, okay, yeah, I guess that, well, we'll go along with that. They lacked their foundation. Contrast that with the bot bag. This is who God's people are meant to be. And honestly, if you're, a G- if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is who you're supposed to be as well. When you have a foundation, like this thing has a foundation, sand of some kind in the bottom of it, it holds you in place. When you know the foundation that is Jesus Christ, 
You can build your life on it and stuff will happen to you and it will be okay. The foundation holds you in place. Not your own strength, not your own makeup, but what you have built your life upon. You can take the hit and you're not totally lost and crisis doesn't have the final say over your life. If you've lost your job, that foundation can hold you back up. If you've gone through a time of sickness, if you've had cancer, if there's divorce in your family or in your own life, you'll take the hit. It'll hit you. God never promises us a friction-free, a conflict-free existence. But you can take the hit because of your foundation. And you can stand back up again. That's what God wanted for the people of Israel. That's why Ezekiel still proclaims at the very end a message of hope to them. Because the foundation, it's been torn up, it's been shredded, but it's still there. It's still there. And if you came in here this morning discouraged about where your life is going, I would ask you, how's your foundation? I am at my most anxious, my most prone to panic attacks and outbursts and all kinds of things that are not good for me when I do not keep in touch with my foundation. When I have neglected my personal time with the Lord, when I have neglected spiritual disciplines in my life, when I'm not journaling, when I'm not praying, when I'm too busy for any of those kinds of things, I am like that balloon. I am not like this lovely elephant. How do you develop a foundation that's going to keep you in place? How do you move away from a balloon-like existence? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, remember who you are. That is Ezekiel's message to the people of God over and over and over again. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. This is not who you're supposed to be. On our welcome table, we have a handout with a bunch of Bible passages, and it just says, Identity in Christ. If you're a Christ follower, pick one of those up. Read through it. Remind yourselves biblically, this is who I am. I am God's chosen. I am God's beloved. He has poured out his grace over me. Say these things to yourself. Recite them to yourself. Grab that and apply it. And if you're still searching for that foundation, or you have people in your life who are, and that should be all of us, then you need to pick up another handout that we have out there about the gospel and religion. What the gospel is and what people think religion is, religion in the pejorative sense of the word, because we need to discover the foundation of Jesus Christ before we can own it, before we can really have it be a part of our lives. Friends, this isn't rocket science, but this is stuff that we lose track of so easily. And whatever has pushed you around this week, whatever external factors have kind of turned you into a balloon, that's okay. My encouragement, my my great hope for us as a church is that we will have that foundation that keeps us in place no matter what. And it's not of our own effort. It's not of our own design. It's from the one who made us and gifted us and empowers us. So I want to invite us now to a time of prayer where we can just pray and ask God for help as we look at these opportunities, as we look at ways to build this foundation out. I'm going to invite the band to come join me back on stage. And I just want you to reflect with me about a couple of questions. You can write these down. What crisis am I facing right now? How long has it been going on? Have I asked God for help? That's a question I have to ask myself a lot. Did I even ask for help? Or am I just trying to 
make this thing work on my own? And where is God in my crisis? Where is God in my discouragement? Where is God? Have I been looking for him? Have I been asking for him to show up? So Jesus, we turn these questions over to you in our hearts. We turn over the the turmoil that we sometimes experience in our calling. We turn over our lives and our families and our neighborhoods and our roommates to you. We admit that so often we're just like that balloon. We're just tossed by whatever is going on. And like your son taught, we need that foundation. We need to be built on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ. So God, convict us in these closing moments in worship about places where we've built our life on sand, where like the Israelites, crisis has caused us to uproot and uproot and uproot, and all of a sudden we don't have our foundation anymore. We've lost touch with our first love. Lord, remind us in the deepest part of our hearts of who you are, and how that shapes who we're called to be. We ask these things in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.